Knowing what body this character has really drops me. Actions, the thesaurus, that has become like a Bible. It's creative visualization that really set me free. I love actioning, very specific action verbs. This is season four of the Actor's Mind podcast. Season four style. Yeah. Season four. Season four. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Actor's Mind Season 4, Episode 2. My name is Ann Penner. I'm Kateri McRae. And what this episode is about is it is our response to the uh, psychological scientific findings, data, information that our three wonderful guests discussed and shared with us uh, in the first episode. So in a, a recent conversation with Kateri, she helped me realize that I am now teaching acting differently because of our four-year relationship talking about acting and psychology and how they overlap. And so, for example, when I assign, say, our very first episode, uh, which has a lot of uh, delicious information about objective and appraisal theory of emotion, uh, I end up teaching objective better, I think. I think I teach it more thoroughly, and I teach it with a better understanding of how emotion works and the relationship of emotion and goal setting. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I'm attempting to do in this episode, which is we got the science, we got the psychology in our first episode, and now this is kind of a, a digestion, right? A sort of response and reflection on how some of that information impacts and possibly improves the actor's toolbox. And what Talia said in the previous episode is the flexible toolbox, which I love so much. So I want to focus on empathy, which Talia is an expert on and speaks about a lot. That's my main focus. And mm -hmm. I also want to talk about, um, with Kateri, metacognition and creativity measures. Let's so, do it. Let's do it. So can we jump, anything you want to say before we jump into empathy, Kateri? No. All right. No, I'm so, excited. <laughs> so, so I'm gonna. I'm just gonna jump in. So, empathy. I, I just recently looked it up. Definition: the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. So, up until I heard Talia talk about empathy, I had this really crude like definition of mm. it, which is I thought it meant me feeling, in its most basic sense, me feeling exactly what the other person was feeling. And this comes up a lot in acting, where beginning actors, young actors, often think that they're supposed to feel as the character feels, right? Mm. To play the emotion. And the and and as you've heard me say multiple times, I struggle with how to teach emotion and I, in class, and I think I've gotten better at this. But what was so fantastic about her definition is it became a much more sophisticated, much more nuanced, multi-layered way of looking at empathy. So you have cognitive empathy, which is understanding of other people's mental and emotional states. It's like how you think about mm -hmm. other people's inner states. And then she called it both affective empathy or emotional empathy, which is the emotional response you have to someone else. The emotional response um, is concurrent and appropriate, Right. So simultaneous and appropriate, but that doesn't mean it's identical. Yeah. So that was like a huge deal for me. It's like if I'm playing a character who's sad or angry, I, the actor, does not actually have to get in a state of sad and anger, which so many actors, including me, yeah. have put themselves into or tried to put themselves into. Or, or if you do start to feel that way, it doesn't have to be proportional, right? If yeah. you're, because we also feel multiple things at once. So if you're, character is, you know, 20% frustrated and 80% angry, right? Which are really similar emotions, but have different energetic levels um, and have different, you know, frustrated has more connotations of irritation and annoyance, whereas anger has more connotations of violence and dist distraction. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and you could potentially as the actor, you could flip that. Right, and you could be oh. more frustrated than angry, and play with that. If if you as an actor are more comfortable with frustration than anger, you could really lean into that piece piece of it, and, but still express some of the anger to get there. But what, I, what as you were just saying, you know what this made me realize, what? Anne? What? Your your baseline definition of empathy um, implies that there's a right answer. Yes. Implies that there is a correct way that if you did the script analysis correctly, this is how the character is feeling. And it is your job as the actor to identify and then perfectly embody the correct answer. Right. 
And, and nobody actually, no. nobody who acts would actually endorse that as, as being the, the way that you do it, right? No. And that's actually the end point. That's the thing I wanted to mention at the end of the episode. And I'm going to mention the end of the episode and now, which is what I loved about the psychologists, our three guests' response to like, what do actors, what should actors learn from you? Is like the toolbox is flexible. Like yeah. there, what Talia said so beautifully at the end of the episode was there is <laughs> there is no scientific data yet to explain what good acting is versus bad acting. Can we wait around a little bit more in this Please. like really exciting um, and free space of like you don't have to reach this correct emotional state because <laughs> um, not to get super nerdy about the meaning of the word share, but you, what you were pointing out, right, is like sharing isn't identical, right? We can share a meal and order different things off the menu. Yeah. Yeah. And we're still sharing that experience and there's still some similarities and points of entry and there's still the opportunity to offer each other food off each other's plates. Maybe not right now. (laughs) (laughs) If you're in the same household. Yes. Yes. Um, But that, that sharing emotion is not, is again, not the same as having the identical and proportional emotional response. Oh, I love that. I love that. We're going to start to also bring in a, a thread in a few more ideas from a really interesting conversation between a, a psychologist who's an expert on empathy named Jamil Zaki and Dax Shepard, the actor and now podcast uh, guru who has armchair expert. And then he has this sort of subset of armchair expert, which I think is like experts on expert, which yeah. Jamil Zaki. So this is an interview from January of this year of 2021. Um, and, uh, a question I have for you is I um, I notice, and this pops up, Jamil says this too, but I want to hear your answer, Kateri, yeah. is I notice in an acting class, students have a much easier time with cognitive empathy than with emotional mm-hmm. empathy. So cognitive, and cognitive is really what I'm trying to get the students to do, which is they do the script analysis, right? They do some of these tools that we've already discussed. They unpack the text, they look for clues, they figure out the given circumstances, all the different facts that are operating on the character. And then they begin to understand intellectually why the character is behaving or feeling the way they are. Why, and then for some of them, probably me included, emotional empathy, this idea of sharing emotion, sharing even physical sensation with the character is frightening. Mm. Do you have an idea why? Well, um, I do, but I, I I don't know if I can articulate um my first response is, of course, that's scarier, right? That it's, uh, of co- it's, it's easier to control your, it, it, it's less frightening to think about to engaging in analysis because when you are engaging in analytical thought, you are in control of the distance that you have to that concept. Analytical thought, almost by definition, if you think back to our episode um, on psychological distance, Analytical thought usually is at a bird's eye level. It, 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 you you take a step back to analyze. And so you are not giving yourself as part of the analytical process. And um, in fact, a lot of people would argue that objective analysis is superior. So yeah. the, 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 the less of your own perspective and experience that you contribute, the, the better the analysis will be. The emotional piece, yeah. you are, because appraisal theory tells us that if things are not relevant to ourselves, we cannot feel an emotion about them, you are buying in yeah. of yourself. Yeah. And in an acting setting, you are buying in, I think Talia would say, in an embodied way. Yes. You are giving of your of your body and of your emotional responses. And we don't we don't know how much we're gonna be able to control that process. Yeah. We don't know whether we're, we're going to end up sobbing on the floor. Yeah. If we really open ourselves up to that or if we're going to have to 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 engage some of, you know, the, these things that I study in terms of how to regulate our own emotions. Um it also feels more personal, especially if you do subscribe to this theory that there's a correct answer. Yeah. If someone says, you know, what are the what are the antecedent 
uh, situational features that lead to this character, you know, uh, signing this will in right. Act Two, Scene Four, and you say, "Oh, uh, one of the antecedent feature w- was the dead bird in the bird bath." Right. So, right. I don't know what play this is. <laughs> I, I, I like it. This though. is you a checkout play for sure. <laughs> There's a dead bird in the bird bath. Um, yeah. You know. Um, and then, and then the director says, well, no, actually, I don't think that contributes to that. Like, yeah. sure, maybe your feelings are a little bit hurt. Maybe yeah. your intellectual, you know, buy-in is a little hurt. But if you do the, if you, if you have the wrong emotion, that feels more personal. Yeah. That feels like you're doing something yeah. wrong in life a little bit more. If, if you have, if someone else deems your emotional response inappropriate or out of proportion or, or weird or... Yeah. And I, I love so two things are popping up that I love is is how physical emotion is. Yeah. And how in an acting class, and I see this in an acting one class, which is a bunch of majors and non-majors, like how hard it can be for some students who don't practice this to show up physically. Mm. And similarly, Talia's point that <clears throat> this this sort of combination of this opportunity in theater, drama, games, classes to practice embodied experiences, embodied, physicalized, emotional experiences in a safe space, so in a container of a class, right, is so valuable and it and it yeah. increases empathy and it decreases emotional distress. All these things that you mentioned, increases self-concept, is so valuable. I I I see this in I was actually just reading, we just finished a quarter, so I was reading um, Acting One Student Final Reflections, and so many of them talk about feeling uncomfortable at the beginning of the class to kind of get up and stand in, even when they're all doing it together, and to do these kind of goofy acting exercises that have really serious learning goals, learning objectives. Mm-hmm. And that they all feel sort of cringe, they don't all, but many of them feel sort of like cringy and yeah. uncomfortable because they don't practice this. Yeah. Um, except if you're a theater major uh-huh. and perhaps a like music dancer, you have some experience with that. And athletes are great uh, at it, right? Because yeah. they're so used to presenting and performing mm-hmm. with their bodies mm-hmm. and showing their bodies to the public. But over time, over two weeks, three weeks, by the middle of the quarter, they dig it. Yeah. They like it. But it's so interesting how hard it can be to show up physically and therefore emotionally. Like we just want to, it's just, it's what you practice, right? Theater majors, like if I have a class, if I have a directing class or an upper level acting class and it's mostly majors, they just show, they've learned that. Yeah. Um, So what's the question? I think the question is, as like an acting teacher and student is how do you prepare your, for rehearsal or for class to be, what do you need? Yeah. Um, and that popped up, I think, with Dennis's work, too, that the prof- the, the professional actors were easier at being, quote-unquote, creative than the stu- students took yeah. longer to warm up. C- can I just go back f- for just a second before we go? I'm interested in what you have to say there, but it, what you were just saying 30 seconds ago was, was um, reminding me, and maybe this is sort of obvious, but, you know, when I talk about what's um, different about emotion and cognition— you know, one of my first answers is that emotion is more embodied, right? There are some aspects of cognition that are embodied. I feel like emotion is by definition more embodied. And emo- the, 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 the brain and bodily systems that drive emotion come from a place of bodily needs, right? Like the, the, the core systems that drive emotions come from escaping physical harm, escaping contaminants, and pursuing sources of sustenance and reproduction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. All of those are bodily needs. And so I think that there is something much more vulnerable about embodying things because our bodies are closer related to life and death than our thoughts. Yeah. And I think that because of that, that processes involving that are more embodied are feel more vulnerable and they also feel more essential to who we are. Yeah. And if you think about some of the ways that the rhetoric um it, to invite people in to have more empathy for groups that are unlike them, the rhetoric around um reminding um reminding you of people's bodily instantiations if you talk about the threat of police violence to harm black and brown bodies yeah. that is so much more powerful 
than to say it in a more intellectual way of, well, the risk of loss of life, right? right? Like right. it's so, that's so more removed. Right. But to remind someone, we all have these bodies. We all, I think in an earlier episode, I was talking to my daughter and I was saying she has this, she's just this squishy, you know, sack yeah. of, of bones and, and flesh and, and I and I want to protect her. Yeah. So to remind us that we all have the same squishy body, yeah. so the same squishy sacks. Yeah. Um, Makes it helps you connect on a deeper level and helps you understand the 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 really primal threat um, that some people think about way more often than others because of their position in society. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. Something that, that I'm going to kind of jump forward and then back again, yeah. which is metacognition is the next thing I eventually yeah. want to talk about, and I think. Something that, uh, again, a, a really hyper-intelligent Acting One student um, expressed who's not a theater major just this past quarter was like, oh, he discovered by the end of the quarter that like he has agency in flowing back and forth between being in character mm. and being himself on stage. And that power, that agency to, to understand that like the character is not going to swallow you up. I mean, maybe... In really rare circumstances, if some aspect of your self-concept is is extremely fragile, but like it's just not going to happen, you know. Yeah. Like there is agency in you moving in and out of this mental and emotional state in character and back out of you, and it ties to, you know, he's not going to become a professional actor, but like he'll do public presentations and public speaking, and he'll have job interviews, and and he's like, I used it in a job interview where like we move constantly, like very fluidly, a million times a day in and out of these different versions of ourselves, mm. these different roles. And, you know, having taught a little at the business school, this idea of executive presence, right, which to me is stage presence, like an, an executive, a leader is bringing their best self. It's still them. It's authentically them. But it's them at their, like, most articulate, most intelligent, best listener self, you know. So that to me sort of ties back is metacognition, but that idea of, like, mm. that there isn't one right you at any given moment, right, that you're constantly moving. You have freedom as a human being to kind of move in and out of these different emotional states. I, I love what you're saying. I'm, yeah. my, I'm trying to figure out if that, surely that is some type of metacognition. I just don't know what to call it. Yeah. And and I, you have a much, when we jump there, I want you to unpack that yeah. phrase because I know it means, it's a big thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that's sort of how I'm interpreting it. Um, a couple of things from the Dak Shepard, Jamil Zaki uh, interview that I loved that I encourage everyone to listen to is what I love about now... I've been teaching in person the whole year, but spending more time with people in person is that even with a mask on and even not super up close, <laughs> I am empathizing with people better than I can on Zoom because oh. I get to look in their eyes. I get to read a lot of information on their bodies, like how they're doing, mostly energy level, Interesting. right? And even emotion on their body. So that even though we've lost these like three, four inches of the nose <laughs> down to the chin, I have eye and whole body and I am engaging therefore with people and I think empathizing at times with them. Yes. And, on, it, it, and by empathize, I mean I understand their mental and yep. emotional state better than I can on Zoom. Yeah. And I, I, I'm gr I just appreciate that. And I think that's what actors are trying to find on stage, which is you're allowing yep. that other character's mental, emotional state to impact your body, yeah. right, in your brain. You know what my hypothesis is? This mm -hmm. I'm sure some I'm sure people are doing studies on this. Like it's been, um, I don't know if we're all full up for this season, but we we at some point we should at least do a, a segment within another episode on a quick update of like the vastly accelerated understanding of psychological science that has been inspired or spurred by COVID nineteen. Yeah, because there are so many people. Um, it. There's like a meta scientific layer here too, which is like there are certain types of people who have had more freedom to do um, research in the last little bit than others because they don't have increased obligations rather than decreased. But um, the people who have been able to to uh, to pivot to asking research questions around COVID nineteen within affective science, there's been a lot of questions about how are masks impacting our communication? How is virtual communication different than in-person communication? And so I'm sure some people have looked at this, but what I would hypothesize is that, um, you know, when we have access to in each other's uh, facial information, we engage in facial mimicry. 
that occurs more when we are able to make eye contact. So there's probably a diminished face, facial mimicry on Zoom. Mm. And that's even without the fact that a lot of people will turn their cameras off or right. that, um, you know, some people some people are looking close to the camera on Zoom. Um but you can't you don't ever have the camera in someone's eyes, right? So you have to choose between you um simulating eye contact with the person versus you taking in their facial information. Yeah. And then there are some people who have like another monitor set up. And so like literally like, you know, they're turned to the side during your whole Zoom conversation. But right, anyway, right. But but what you're missing on Zoom is whole body postural yeah. information. And yeah. that energy that you talk about, I suspect that you're getting that from whole body mimicry. I think so. That you are – right now, I actually really consciously mimicked your um, posture when I sat down because uh-huh. you are always – you have so much more physical training than I do. And I always feel like you are in an open, receptive, physical stance. And so I actually made the conscious choice that I was going to sit like Anne Aww. to have a conversation with her. Um, but – even when you don't decide to do that, like you, your body gets into the same configuration as the people who you're talking to. And yeah. that happens more, the more that you see yourself as similar to them or that you like them or you admire them. And we can ask Danny McIntosh more about some of those boundary yeah. conditions around whole body mimicry. Um, because we get to interview him. Yeah. It's exciting. It's exciting. Um, but I suspect that that's what you're feeling as you come more in person is you're, you're getting that channel of whole body information back that you've been missing for, for um, most of the year when yeah, I think that's totally correct. I yeah, yeah. I I, I glean or guess a lot of information about students' mm. mindset from the shape of their bodies. Wow! In like sitting and and you know in various positions. There was something that else that popped up with the Jamil and Dax conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wrote self-care through empathy, which it's mm-hmm. like the opposite of the golden rule. And this yes. actually made me think of a Big Little Lies moment. Yes. Have you watched that show? No, but I've read the book. Oh, okay. Um, uh, which is which is often, you know, the golden rule being treat others as you wish to be treated. Mm-hmm. But the, the point that Jamil and, and Dax bring up is like it's often, it's often easier to empathize with someone's state of being than it is to give yourself self compassion or self empathy that when someone kind of screws up, um, you say, Oh, it's human. That's Mm -hmm. understandable. And then when you do it, there's just like, you know, loads and loads and buckets of like self-loathing and I suck and blah, blah, blah. Right. But their point is, and I, this is, I want to tie it into acting, which is the more self empathy you can have, the more compassion you can have for yourself. It actually serves you as an actor. And my interpretation of that is, the more that I can, I realize that I am a million different things and I'm going to fuck up and I'm going to be late and I'm going to occasionally yell at my children and I'm going <laughs> to not always listen to my partner. And I, you know, that those are human mm-hmm. and therefore okay. That then when I encounter a character who exhibits those behaviors, right, it's easier for me to link to them. It's yeah. easier for me to say, I get that, I know, or let's figure out where in the text. Why you know that uh, the clues are that explain mm. why you behave that way, rather than that judgment that happens often when you encounter a character and be like, "Oh my God, they're so blank," or "They're so blank." So I found that really interesting in their in their conversation. Are you are you saying that you feel like your practice in developing empathy for a character has made you more compassionate toward yourself? Like if yeah. if you read a script and a character is a lovely person but but flawed. And you are able to connect with that character enough to play them that you then are able to, like, be more accepting of your own flaws? In an ideal world, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely the opposite. Definitely, like, if I can find a – I in my life can find a substitution or personalization experience I had that connects me emotionally or circumstantially to them, it goes from me to them. But, yes, as we've talked in previous episodes, I yes, I think also the character – uh, understanding character gives me compassion for myself. Yeah. And a thing that got popped up in last season is uh, a story I told that's worth repeating briefly here is sometimes the character has a quality that you admire. Yeah. Even if they're a bad guy. In this case, the example I gave, it was really evil character, but they the, the actor playing them was like, he's so 
certain, like mm-hmm. unwavering, like certainty and confidence about who he is. And the actor didn't feel that way. And I think, yeah, I think that this idea of sharing, yeah. right? So changing this word from empathy to sharing where you and the character, and that ties into my metacognition sort of awkward connection, which is like this idea that you're in this constant conversation with that character's lived experience mm. and you can gift them things from your life and they can kind of gift you qualities yeah. too is is fun is that exciting is fun. I just want to say really quickly that you have tapped into something that is totally true and and that I've actually done a little bit of research on so it's a really common therapeutic technique when people are being really hard on themselves mm. for a therapist to say how would you treat a friend in this situation okay. and uh this has been, you know, if you talk to therapists and counselors, this is something that they've known to do forever, but there actually isn't a ton of research on um, the mechanisms. Like, why does that make it easier to think? And so um, I actually have a series of studies that we've done where we use our reappraisal task, where we show people pictures and ask them to generate reappraisals. And in one condition, we ask them to generate reappraisals to make themselves feel better. And in another condition, we ask them to generate reappraisals to make a good friend feel better. Huh. And in the just, same situation. Uh, not in this. We show them different pictures. Mm-hmm. We've done this. We've actually done four or five studies on this. Some of them are um, between group studies. So it's actually one group of people who does it for themselves and another group of people who does it for another and they're randomly assigned. We've also had the same person alternate back and forth. But every instance of reappraisal, they get a new negative scenario to um, riff on. So it's, it's not the exact same situations. Yeah. But again, it's randomized so that in aggregate, we're able to say on average, how much better do you? feel when you're reappraising for yourself how much better do you feel when you're reappraising for a friend Um, and actually people report it's equally effective to do it for themselves or from someone else but in most of our studies not every single one of them which is irritating me uh, but in most of our studies if you ask them after the fact which one of those was easier they say oh it was easier to do it for a friend there's a fluidity and an ease um, and a a less of a barrier to do it for someone else Um, And the other thing that we have um, realized in the series of studies is there was one study where we thought, does it matter who this other person is? So a a, a common trick in... um, uh, in social psychology uh, research is to have people do something for themselves, have them do it for a close other, like a friend, family member. In our study, we asked them to think of a friend who was not a romantic interest. So we didn't want baggage of, you know, that Um, versus an acquaintance, right? Someone who these were mostly undergraduates. So someone who's been in several classes of yours, but you don't know well, or someone who lives on the floor of your dorm, but you, you don't consider a friend. And it actually turns out that reappraising for someone you don't know very well is is actually difficult right that you don't huh. get the same benefit that this, this perspective the ability to take the perspective of someone else really only works to help generate reappraisals if you know a little bit about that person and so i what i've heard jamil sometimes say in the past um, I've known Jamil for a while, yeah. um, and I know one of his collaborators and and uh, at one point in his career, a former mentor of his, Jason Mitchell. Um, and one of the things that that they've talked about is that when it comes to empathy, um, that what you said is true, that, that you sometimes extend more empathy to other people than yourself. Yeah. But also the golden rule isn't really treat others how you want to be treated. It's treat others how they're asking to be treated, right? That we don't uh. all want to be treated the same way and that sometimes you get into trouble substituting yourself. If you have different psychological qualities than the person you're empathizing with you sometimes get into trouble using yourself as a substitute for them yeah you have to have a little bit and this is more of that cognitive piece you have to have enough of an understanding of like oh i want chocolate cake and someone to tell me how horrible you know that person was you know when i have a bad day at work um but my partner doesn't want chocolate cake yeah. and someone to tell them how horrible it was. They want to um, watch a funny movie. Right. You know what I mean? So I'm going to queue up the funny movie rather than stop at Whole Foods for the chocolate cake. Yeah, I've hit that. I'm working on this play Grounded, this one-woman show with my colleague Rick Barber. He's the director. And we're actually going to uh, perform it this year, which is awesome. That's very cool. I'm super excited. Uh, and I'm hitting – I'm. Uh, there's a lot of good – work happening. I'm really proud of the project and we're spending all this time, <laughs> um, partly because we're in a pandemic, just like rehearsing outside and taking yeah. our time doing it. But I just recently, the rehearsal is really good. And yet I'm bumping up against, I get the character in so many ways, but there's certain ways in which she is so mm. different from me. And I haven't 
grown into all of those. And I will, and I'm confident I'll figure it out. But that to me is actually cognitive empathy, which is there's certain ways that she just looks at the world and her sense of the self, which is a lot more swagger than me and a lot more alpha than me. I'm like, I kind of feel like I'm sort of alpha, but it's, (laughs) and I'm like, oh, I got to adjust, you know, and that's going to take a little bit of work and I haven't gotten there, but I, I know I will. Um, I will not spoil the bit of info in Big Little Lies if no one has read it or seen it. But at the beginning of episode two, the Nicole Kidman character is in therapy. And she, her therapist, who I love, (laughs) asks her to put a friend, so she puts Reese Witherspoon in the situation that she- I have she, this problem all the time. And I, I just <laughs> I know, have to think like, of it as Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> My friend Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> and she then responds with so much more compassion yeah. when she visualizes Reese Witherspoon, her friend, in her best friend, in this very precarious, dangerous situation mm-hmm. than she is able to take care of herself in that situation. But it changes her and it yeah. makes her more assertive and it and it somehow awakens her to this this self-agency, this power yeah. to actually speak up about this thing that she's been very passive mm-hmm. about in many ways. There's a beautiful moment in the musical Chess, which is oh. a very flawed but beautifully written, beautiful music. Um, chess in concert is like one of my favorite musical theater experiences. The entire show is messy and complicated and all of that. But um, the concert version is beautiful. And there's a wonderful song called Someone Else's Story. Oh, yeah, I know this song. And yeah. the main character um, begins to sing in narrative form about someone else in the third person, right? Long ago in someone else's mm-hmm. lifetime, it starts. Um, and then by the end of the song, she reveals that this someone else that she's been singing about is her and that 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 wouldn't it be so easy to tell this other person what to do, but gosh darn it, I can't, it's me. Oh, wow. It's a, it's there it a, is. I just got goosebumps. It's yeah. a beautiful song. I love it. Yeah. We can, we can, uh, we can put in on a, a link on the website to, yeah. to, um, someone awesome singing it. And I don't know what the why is there, except I, it's linking me to, um, experiences where I see actors who offstage are super neurotic <laughs> and onstage are just gorgeous and amazing and tell a really beautiful story. And I think the difference is, in other words, the person they're playing is the other person, right? Yeah. And their real life is a bit messier. And it's like they have less compassion for their offstage version of themselves. And all mm. I think is, going back to Talia, like the stage is, is contained and it's safe yeah. because you know what the story is going to be. And yeah. so you can be messy and you can be vulnerable because you know that the scene will end or the play will end. Mm-hmm. But your life is just like less bounded in that way. Yeah. Um, I have two more really quick things about empathy. Um, okay. I was talking to a therapist <laughs> friend of mine and uh, she describes empathy uh, or one way of looking at it is, is someone else's emotions come at you physically. Like they tickle Mm. you or they drown you Mm. or they hit you or they hug you. And I thought that's really helpful for actors to, who, who like to think physically is this idea of like, I'm on stage with this other character and whatever their mental emotional state is, I want it to in, not necessarily in enter me internally, not necessarily infect me so much as it's, it's like, it's, it's doing some action, some verb. It's, it's okay. Yes. (laughs) I'm so excited. I'm making all sorts of extraneous noise. Okay, you've transitioned from talking about the empathy between actor and character yeah. to empathy between characters on, in a scene. Yes. Just, to, just to mark that for, for our viewer, for our reader, <laughs> listener, that person. <laughs> Hi, people. Um, what, and we've talked before, right, that um, it makes really good action verbs it makes really good objectives if i want to tickle you yeah but what you're saying is that also it is my responsibility on stage to be open to being tickled yeah yeah and that is a less that is a less precision science that's because objectives are good when they're specific right that that it 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 flavors it colors it accentuates my um performance whether or not I want to tickle or scratch you as with specif- my a lot of specificity, mm-hmm. but when on the receptive end, it actually benefits you to be open. Yes, that's my note. <laughs> We're like in the same brain right now, which is I would argue, and it might be hyperbolic, but I'm going to argue it anyway. That the best actors have space in their performance to receive. Right? The lived experience of the other person. I mean, it's it's that adage, like, acting, it's Meisner, right? Acting is reacting. Yeah. But it's a thing that requires practice 
and new, like green actors tend to think it's all about acting and doing, which it is partially, but so much is about uh, listening with your whole body and taking in information from a scene partner and the environment, right? And, and whatever is happening in the set and arguably even with the audience to some extent. Okay. You're blowing my mind. Yay. I just took what you said and translated it into emotion space. And in emotion space, there is um, uh, more targeted, uh, focused energy that tends to be associated with higher arousal states, be they positive or negative, that are more like a laser, right? That, and so when we are talking about delivering on your objective, this is a more targeted thing. And I am going to argue that most of the time, the uh, the the emotions that are driving scenes in terms of script analysis and objectives that need to be laid out are negative emotions. Uh-huh. So every once in a while there's a positive one. But conflict. You, but you, yeah, conflict. And objectives drives, need obstacles. They need things in exactly. the way. Exactly. And so and and um for the most part, examples of high arousal emotions tend to be anger, disgust, you know, really um f- strongly felt things. Those things tend to narrow attention more lasery. From an a, a, an affective point of view, you open up um, by being in a lower arousal space. Oh. By being in a calmer, more receptive space. And not always. You can be in a calmer, um, negative emotion space. Sadness comes to mind as something that is more diffuse and calm and still negative. But for the most part in the literature, these are um, positive states. These are contentment. These are – and so huh. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering <laughs> whether or not good acting is actually successfully holding both at once or maybe bouncing very quickly back and forth uh-huh. between this high arousal laser focus and this open receptivity, right? And if you think about training yeah. – acting training drives both of those things right you do so much of the mindfulness the presence the cultivating non-responsiveness and leaving your emotions at the door to to get the receptivity piece down but then you have this focused i need this from you right now yeah i just leaned it yeah that was fun (laughs) (laughs) um and that kind of worked for the moment. Like yeah. the, the the thing you were arguing it was exactly yeah. yeah. And 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 that that's the that's the game. That's, that's the, the game. game is is maintaining this open receptivity that is a slightly positive state. And I think that's also why um, um actors want to be like that that's actors want to get into that state. My tie into actor training is as actors are assessing, this is maybe the bridge to metacognition. Yes, yes. Okay, and interoception is that as actors are, if if you take what they ju- what you just said is truth or a nice rule, which is you you want to be able to navigate both the kind of arousal state, which creates energy and focus and pursuit of a, a want, right, and and actually achieving that want, and then that idea of receptivity is sort of assessing your uh, what would what would you call it like your comfort space, like where you as a human being, as an actor, not as a character, line up. So for me personally, I think I'm relatively psychologically healthy, but I run more on the like heightened. Like, I'm go, 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 and I'm trying to achieve shit, right? And then when I actually relinquish control or surrender to the relaxation, it feels so good. Yeah. But that's harder for me. I spend less than half my time in that, you know? So as an actor sort of navigating, like, I'm going to enter rehearsal. Am I in the aroused state? Am I in the Mm -hmm. heightened, like, I'm going to go get what I want in character state? Or am I more in the receptive? And it depends on the scene, too. And it depends on the character and depends on the play and what the play and the character requires. Yeah. just really fast, all the tools that we've talked about in previous episodes are to some extent meant to help you empathize with character. That's an sure. obvious thing, but I just want yeah. to state that. Yep. Like as you un- do script analysis and you, you work on physicality and you work on objective and substitution, these are these are ways to increase cognitive and, and emotional empathy. Yeah. Metacognition. Interoception are two words Peter mentioned, and in his study, he said that actors aren't better at interoception, but better at metacognition. Could you? I'm especially curious about metacognition. Um, I guess I would love for you to uh, define those again, or define them in the way that you think is useful to our sure. conversation. Yeah, um, I mean, metacognition just is um, the the if you apply the meta to the cognition, 
um, metacognition is thinking about thinking, right? Or thinking about psychological process. And it's often used as a proxy in the psychological literature for awareness of another process. So, um, within the memory literature, um, you can ask somebody, um, you can read someone a story and then you could ask them, um, you know, in the story, did Jane go to the store first or did she go to the bus stop? Um, you know, and you can get their accuracy. So their, their, their memory for the story is their accuracy in being able to answer that question correctly. And then if you get their meta memory, if you get an huh. estimate of meta memory, it's how sure are you? Right. You can you can get metacognition in a in a sort of subjective. How confident are you? You can also say it within the memory literature. Meta memory also refers to judgments of do you know for sure or do you have a feeling of knowing? Huh. Right. So a lot of times our memories are either um, very discreet and we we have we, you can say, nope, I remember she went to the bus stop first because. I always go to the bus stop first thing in the morning and like I had linked it to all of these things in my life. I had drawn all of these hooks, you know, that we've talked about before versus just this vague like, oh, I just I just thought I knew. I just I just yeah. I had a vague sense of um, uh, that that was true versus you when you do a, a, a meta memory um, uh, study, the three options are usually um, uh, I, I knew for sure. Uh, I had an explicit memory that that was the case. Um, I had a feeling of knowing or I was guessing. I, I didn't know, right? Oh, I, it, it was a total. So um, so metacognition in general refers to these, these judgments um, or awareness of other psychological processes. So in Pete's cool. study, yeah, in Pete's study, um, what he measured was their interoceptive accuracy. So there is an objectively correct answer as to whether or not um, the heartbeats that they were listening to were aligned or misaligned with their own heartbeat. Um, and then there was how, how sure are you that you were right about that, right? Like we forced you to guess, we forced you to give us an answer, but do you think you were right or yeah. do you think you were wrong? And yeah. so um, they, the, the actors uh, weren't any more um, skilled at, in, at, at reading their own bodily states. Yeah. But they knew when they were off. They yeah. they they knew when when they when they were closer to to getting it, and when they they were not yeah. not, not there at all. So this jogged what you just said and and Pete's Peter's Pete's description yeah. of it um, jogged two things, which I might be incorrectly labeling as metacognition, but I'm gonna still go 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 for it. Um, if it's helpful to you. Yeah, I think it's you can call it that. Yeah, that's the beauty <laughs> yep. of being in an art, right? <laughs> yep. Um, I have found, and you've asked me about this before, I have found it incredibly useful as an actor to be curious about my own states of being, mm -hmm. to be constant, no, I won't say constantly because that's mm -hmm. tedious, right? <laughs> to often to catch myself assessing how I'm feeling, what I'm thinking. So what am I thinking? How am I feeling physically? How am I feeling emotionally? And it pops up like it came up a week ago where I felt really sad, Mm. And I also marvel at how quickly one moves through these states. Like the yeah. sadness, it wasn't super quick, but it was probably like two hours of the mm. whole day, you know? And I really didn't know why. Like, but I was I was curious about the sensation. And then when I'm thinking, okay, so there's two things going on. Is like, how does emo why am I labeling it as an emotion? It could just be a physical sensation. Like I might just be tired yeah. or hungry, yeah. but I'm I'm choosing sad rather than hungry or tired. Um, and so just trying to like understand it in really granular ways. And then I was like, am I sad about this circumstance? Maybe, but I didn't know. Am I sad mm -hmm. about this one? I, I don't know. Why am I sad? Because like my obvious superficial circumstances of the day were very positive. Yeah. But th I think that kind of curiosity about both actor self as you go through a day and then translating that into character is really... Uh, healthy. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, and it, it pops up in Respect for Acting, I forget what chapter, but this idea of just like this constant sort of investigation yeah. of your state of being, does that, would you label that as metacognition or is it more just curiosity? I think, I don't know if it matters whether I would label it as metacognition yeah. or not. I do think that, um, uh, and there, it, you know, it, uh, I think some people would, that, that you were, um, 
that curiosity about your own mood states is a sort of meta mood or a, 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 a metacognition about your, your mood. Um, and it is, it is healthy. And one of the things that I actually have to remind myself because I'm not a clinician and I spend so much of my day thinking about emotions and what comes before them and what comes after them. And, you know, I remind myself that in really extreme clinical cases, when people are really quite impaired because of their clinical psychological disorders, they're having a lot of trouble with them. Um, a lot of times, uh, they can't distinguish between an emotion and a non-emotion. Huh. Right? Like uh-huh. they, uh, you know, um, you ask them, uh, you know, they, they, they describe something happening at work and you say, how are you feeling? And they'll say, well, I was wondering why my boss did that. Huh. That's actually not a feeling right. at all. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? And it actually is step one of a lot of therapeutic processes to just get people to distinguish between what are emotions and what are not emotions, right? Just like step one of a lot of student learning is getting uh, students to distinguish between opinion and fact. Yeah. Um, You know, it's really uh, baseline uh, um, emotional well-being, baseline, uh, you know, sort of therapeutic technique to get people to, to, to make that distinction. Yeah. And I think it ties to Talia's research of this kind of f- emotional flexibility, malleability. When you put on a costume yeah. or you embody a different character, then that gives you permission in that fiction to take on a different emotion. And that yeah. creates a less sort of fixed, rigid sense of self. Cool. The, the other thing I wanted to bring up, which I'm going to call metacognition, <laughs> Do is... It. I mean, this whole podcast is meta. I know, right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's why I was thinking that about five yeah. minutes ago as you were defining it. Um, <laughs> as you know, Katiri... Welcome um, to the actor's <laughs> metacognition. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> um, as you know, um, actors are... I'm going to say, I'm going to disagree with myself. I'm going to first state that actors are notoriously bad at assessing their performances. The other thing, okay, yay. The other thing I'm going to say is it's all over the map. I've had experiences both with me as the actor and a friend as the actor be hypercritical of their work, like unfairly critical of their work. I have had the opposite in experience. This is less often where someone thinks there may be better in their performance than they are. And I remember years ago listening to Jason Bateman um, talk on Terry Gross Fresh Air about him as like a child actor on Little House on the Prairie. And I think Michael Landon was the director. And he was like, he had like this really intense death scene, right? And he's like 12. And he doesn't. He just is like, acts the shit out of it. He's like, fine, nailed it. And then Michael Landon's like... All right, Jason, let's try that again. <laughs> so I think that happens too where you are like, for some reason you think it's better than it is. Yeah. And then honestly, there are moments where you kind of are like, yeah, yeah, that was good. And it was good, right? Yeah. And so I just want to bring it uh, back to this this play grounded I'm working on because I just had this experience this week where I ran the first half of this, say, 70, 75-minute piece. And I'm working with my colleague, Rick. And it felt really good. And me feeling good was both correct and wrong in terms of the performance, which was what was good about it was I now the lines were automated. And so I was the state I was setting the staging. I was more confident in the staging and I was more confident in the sense of the words, like expressing the meaning of the words. That was, quote unquote, good or maybe even objectively good. What was not yet correct, which Rick graciously brought to my attention was (laughs) in I don't yet I don't. I have not answered all the questions about the character. I do not mm. yet fully understand the character. So I was too much me. Yeah. I was too generous as a character performing it. She's a much, uh, she's much, she's, she is, I don't know, I want to say she's more selfish than me, but she's not always giving, like, she's very black and white about herself. Okay. Um, and so I haven't figured that out. So that was wrong. And so the point being is like at, at any given moment, an actor is doing so many things yeah. that they're partially conscious and partially probably not conscious yeah. of. And that was an example of me sort of like I was in the gray, like yep. I nailed some shit and I didn't nail some other stuff. And so this idea of like assessing your, your, your role is kind of silly because you, you probably the person being critical about themselves, they probably did screw up something. But that something right. is like one one hundredth of the performance, right. you know, versus this, performance, you know, this person who thinks they're rocking it, the young Jason Bateman is probably because it just like energetically felt so good. Yes, 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 yes. And so yes. I am also sort of fascinated. And we've talked about this, but this idea of like 
I don't know, actor, if you mm. should be able to assess. Like, the, the, the audience is having a different experience yes. from you. So you should not be having the same experience as they are having. And do you think we could build, do you think we could outline a finite number of things? Like, if you think about assemblings, something from Ikea, or if you think about building a recipe, there's, you know, we talked just now about the um, receptiveness to others versus the focus of, of pursuing your objective. There's also what we've talked about before in our personality episode. There's also a, these sort of static qualities of character. So it sounds like you were, and then there's mastery of text. So it sounds like you were, you were pleased with your mastery of text and pleased with a little bit of your um, energetic achievement in terms of like staying in re- and in relaxation. It. Yeah. Um, but you ha- there was an aspect of personality. Um, and then there's also a, the, a style of the piece that comes into it too. Mm-hmm. Do you think we, do you think there's like, you know, only five or six or eight of these things that we could define and maybe they become like chapters? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I want to, I want to make that book with you. Yeah. Uh, and I think they are th- a finite list of things and the book can be purchased and used <laughs> and that it is one of still many books. Like there are no, yeah. what Talia said at the end of episode one is do not attach yourself to some acting guru. Like yeah. there is no one human being who knows the finite, who yeah. can describe to you the finite experiences. Cause when they have, Talia said this researched actors, like actors adhere <laughs> to so many different tools, Yeah, but the idea of the flexibility. So yeah, let's make that. And then it is the actor's job to figure out which parts of that are mm-hmm. useful and when they are used. Uh, and sometimes the director helps with that. Yes, too. and what I appreciate, yes, and that was the other point there. Well, I just want to appreciate that you started to define the list. That yep. excites me. Yeah, me too. And then the other thing is um, is that, you know, the directors used to not really exist. I'm not a theater historian, but, like, they kind of came into the world of theater, like, in the 19th. Late 1800s? I need a theater historian. But, but, and there's still companies where there really is like a director and actors direct themselves. But I think in a perfect world, you have a director. You have a good director who you know how to collaborate with who is giving you feedback. And that's Mm -hmm. what in this particular case Rick does. Um, City Company and Bogart's company talks about being, uh, getting enough actor training, a certain type of actor training to become director proof. And what that means, I think it's a danger. It's I like it because it's an exciting concept, which is like if you come across a director who is ineffective, you right. can build the character and have both kind of um, a sort of internal perspective of character, but also that kind of director outside perspective mm-hmm. in terms of body physicality and bodies in space. But it's not the goal. Like I, the goal, I think, is that you want to work with someone who's looking at you from the outside mm-hmm. and assessing. Yeah, yeah, that's what I wanted to hit with metacognition. Cool. Um, what was your creativity? Creati- creativity measures from Dennis. Um, there were maybe two things in particular that interested me. He talked about when he was measuring professional actors, uh, student actors, and non-actors, that actors had heightened number of ideas and elaboration. I'm especially curious about the number of ideas um, Though before we jump in, I wanted you to talk more about elaboration. It's the number of words you use to describe a thing. Right. Yeah. So um, what did we talk about it when we talked about substitution? We had a, we had a word for it, right? That like the richer oh, your... Oh, um, Udhagen says particularization. Like yeah. you're adding yes. a lot of detail. I, I, would, I would venture that what Dennis is measuring as elaboration at least is meant to be something like particularization where if you're asking people what can you do with um, a brick and someone says, uh, well, you could, uh, you know, you could crumble it up and sell it. You know, that's sure. That's it. That's it. One, you you get a tally for like one unique idea. But if you're like, well, you can use a mortar and pestle to grind it to a fine paste. And then you could divide it into small bags with purple ribbons. Like that, that is a more elaborated version of you could, crush it up and sell it yeah the what um, if and the as if like you know yeah and then a man with a monocle comes in and buys yeah. it you give it to his grandchildren yeah. and you say i will give this to you for three pence yeah yeah improvisation <laughs> right 
just creating that's that's sort of exercising imagination. Right. Yeah, which I want to circle back to. I I was also curious about just simply the idea of a higher number of ideas. And mm. one thing that the tie and I have is some of the best directors I've worked with when I've been the actor is they're iterating and iterating and iterating. Like they're not deciding the right staging. They're not until they've done it like 10 times or 20 times. They're not deciding the right even layout. Like say it's a living room. It's like, where's the sofa and where's the chair and where's the door? Like that keeps changing. Where where the actor belongs in space keeps changing. The action you play on that Mm -hmm. particular line keeps changing. So that idea of like accepting that you don't I think so often actors um, habitually, like, they, they they capture an idea that feels right and then they just do it. They do it over and over again. Uh-huh. And it's like, let's just keep playing inside of this, yes. this thing. So that struck me as, like, just a heightened number of ideas interested me. Um, it was so funny. A few days after our conversation, Talia texted me. So she Talia's been actually one of my pandemic buddies where we have like been checking in by text way more than we used to yeah. before the pandemic, just checking in on our family lives. And, you know, she's uh, put in all her materials for tenure this year, as I alluded to in the intro for her. And so just, you know, lots of lots and lots of checking in in, in the absence of having lots of in-person people, you know, to, to check in with. And she emailed me and she said, I think you might know this. What is the word? Is there a word for the process of iteratively testing things out? You know what I mean? And that that part of the process is valuable. The way that you play in a scene mm-hmm. in rehearsal oh. over and over. So basically what you just described, Talia was like, what do we call that thing? Like, what's the name for that? And I was like, I, I mean, it's iterative play. It's it's te- it's testing and playing. Like, I didn't, I actually couldn't come up with a particular word. And I was like, I'm sure the design thinking people have a name for this, right? This is part of design thinking. And she was like, oh, I looked at the design thinking, you know, <laughs> jargon. And like, neither of us came up with a really satisfying, like singular term for it. Yeah. But clearly it's a central piece of the yeah. process of this. Um, it, it, it's iterative, it's playful, but it builds off of each other. Yeah. Like the choice you make at number three, you couldn't have done if you didn't make choice number two. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, repetition is the word that seems maybe most common, but yeah. it's a kind of boring word. And then in French, rehearsal, I think, is repetition. Um, so this idea... But there's something of making it new every time yeah. that's missing from that, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's well, repetition then, with variation. So that's where iteration feels like the yes. best word for it. And I've started to use that word a lot in, yeah. like in the past... Oh, is it since it's not since that conversation, probably in this past year for some reason to iterate an idea. Um, The other thing is actors have a higher risk tolerance. And he linked it, of course, to like careers, like our careers are (laughs) very uncertain. I'm more interested in the idea of the risk involved in what we just spoke about 20 minutes ago, which is tolerating the fear that you're actually going to enter into this contract with this other person on stage and you're going to share this lived experience. Mm And that inside of that, even if it's scripted, is improvisation. You mm-hmm. don't know where it's going to go because they might give you information. And to me, that willingness to put yourself in that equals higher risk tolerance yep. to some extent. Yeah, and the the di- personality dimension that um, Dennis was interpreting as that was this dimension of openness to experience, which yeah. I think really, if we think about distinguishing between, I think I'm so excited. I think this is brand new, and this distinguishing between the tools necessary to articulate and pursue objective versus to to be receptive the openness to experience is the receptivity piece yeah. of it and that's the scary i actually think that is the scarier part right i think the the generation of the goal and the objective and even the emotions that may come from that is less scary. That seems less vulnerable to engage in that piece of the acting process than the, and I'm going to be responsive to whatever my scene partners are giving me. The one other thing that uh, listening to Dennis and his description of these creativity measures uh, came to mind, and this is not a fully formed thought, but I'm going to share it with you anyway, Kateri, is this idea of, so when you measure creativity, a bunch of these exercises are increasing or allow, increasing imagination, right? Mm-hmm. Allowing you to, um, I think imagination is really hard to define, but this idea of, of integrating circumstances that are real with fiction. What is imagination to you, Kateri? <laughs> it's a huge question. I'm fascinated with what it means to us, how yeah, we define I, it. 
I'm coming up with this on the fly. Yeah. I would talk about it as the ability to generate highly elaborated and um, specific visions of things for which you do not have proximal reference. Right. So yeah. it's easy enough. You know, we're in this beautiful um, sound studio. There's some um, soundproofing material on the the wall behind you and that you can't see that is purple and blue. It's very easy for me to imagine those being bright green and yellow. Right. That's not super imaginative. Right. right? But if I imagine that we are floating in a, uh, a sea of purple molecules in a galaxy that no one has ever discovered, and there's a life form that is part hairy and part dipping dots, you know, that is offering us a new food that um, is, you know, all of those yeah. things, I the, the fewer grounding reference that you ha- that you have seems to be indicative of greater imagination but the danger is the fewer reference that you have the less um, specific and elaborated that vision is Mm. and so the more that your vision becomes specific and elaborated but without having concrete exemplars in front of you I think of that as imaginative and I think and this is a very um, biased uh, uh, understanding of imagination based in kind of acting technique which is that idea of creating a really specific fiction with nonfiction elements, yes. like with nonfiction tools. So the yes. idea of substitution of, of mm-hmm. experiences and people in your real life sort of becoming and morphing and transforming into the fictional circumstances of the play or yeah. the character and allowing that really fluid give and take of fiction and nonfiction. Yes. And in the way that a theater, uh, an actor, or director, or designer talks, a playwright even, of you're like moving in and out of not just fictional and nonfictional, but literal and expressive or expressive and literal and that um uh, that to me is imagination and imaginative Mm. and that just jumps me to just thinking about pattern recognition and that being in a a way of sort of fluid intelligence or like Mm -hmm. giftedness and this idea that like Anne Bogart talks about when I interviewed her for a creativity episode that like research equals pattern recognition so like the more work you do you begin to see Mm. patterns of behavior, patterns of fact. And so I'm just curious, it's only a a half formed idea in my head, but that the more creativity, the more creative one is, the more imaginative one, the more one is able to iterate uh, ideas, the more opportunity you have for recognizing patterns one in the world of the play, which is more the director designer's idea, but in the world of the character, yeah, the character's sense of self and their behavior, you through this work begin to see a pattern, sure. and the pattern, the repetition of certain behaviors is the thing that you then execute that you well and do. I would argue that pattern um, that there's there are different levels of patterns, right? So like the idea that you've given in the past of pattern when we talked about personality and traits of people is psychological gesture, right? That there are physical things that people repeat over and over again. That's a pretty low level pattern, right? And it would actually be quite unfulfilling if that was the only pattern that had emerged from a research. Like that would be a really ill, um, ill researched character. If you just, you know, if you just, I'm like, I'm doing a gesture right now. If you're just like fidgeting with your hands for the whole performance, like that's not acting. But the more that your patterns are about the conclusions your character draws, the yes. the um, the information that your character selectively attends to in the world, yeah, those are more those are meatier patterns, and those will lead to a more yeah. nuanced performance. Yeah. Um, and. I don't know how that ties new imagination. And ties way back in, well, yeah, it's okay. It ties also back to this idea of super objective or through objective. Like if there's these concentric cir- yes. circles of wants, you have one that runs the whole yeah. length of the play, which Stanislavski would call the through action, or you can call the super objective, right? Which is this, it can be a noun. Like this person wants adventure. They want yeah. power. They want comfort. They want safety. And that's a pattern. Like, And they behave in a way that gets them that thing. Yeah. 
repeatedly. Um, and then, you know, in an, in a subsequent uh, episode, I want to do metaphor because metaphor to me is pattern making. Yes. Right? Like if, if I say Kateri is, is the sun, Kateri <gasps> is a rock. Kateri oh. is a breath of fresh air. Oh. Kateri is a... I feel like Mother is, Nature. <laughs> is, ...is an ice cream cone <laughs> after a, a long bike ride. <laughs> you know, right? That that are like these two dissonant things yeah. that like in literal world don't go together, but in like imaginative, expressive, creative world, yeah. they totally go together because we're linking, well, Kateri makes me happy and sunshine makes me happy, right? And that's the pattern recognition. Totally. So there's like a whole other like hour long conversation around that. I just want to try, begin to link like the idea of imagination equals patterning equals even sure. metaphor. And because metaphor is like the bread and butter of making a, a play. I totally agree. I look forward to talking more about metaphor. I have lots of thoughts about that. Yeah. So do you eat? Oh, good. I'm so excited. Do you have any concluding thoughts? No, just um, it, I I think um, our experiment has been successful. I like this flip. Um, I was worried. I was worried about starting with the science and going back into acting, but I think it totally works. Yeah, me so. too. So I'm excited to do a little bit more. It proves that it's, what would you say about emotion and thinking that like um, uh, scientists argue like which one comes first yeah. and that as from an actor, I'm like, I don't care as long as yeah. they're kind of living side by side. So maybe it's yeah. like, it doesn't matter the order. And as long as we try it both ways, it's, well, maybe it's, it's a good thing. Just not to toot our own horns, but maybe we've set up a successful cycle and now we have multiple entry points into the cycle. It doesn't matter where we start. The, totally. the, the momentum just keeps going. Yeah. And so I just want to finish with um, a, a thank you. It's nice to be in person yeah. with you. I want to thank Michael again for listening thank to you. us. And that just that final thought that Talia had at the end of the last episode of like, there's no science that tells you exactly like yeah. what makes a good and bad actor, right? And this idea of a flexible tool, not just a toolbox or tool, tool belt, which I love, <laughs> but just the flexibility of like you having all these tools um, that then you get to decide based on your style, director's style, mm -hmm. style of the play, what the scene needs, what the character needs, which ones you use at any given time. Totally. All w right. Wise words for acting and perhaps for life. For life. Until next time. Until next time. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. We want to thank our amazing uh, podcast team, Jonathan, Michael, Jennifer, Cami, all of our guests, and some funding from the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences. And finally, this amazing recording studio in the Lamont School of Music on campus. All of that is at the University of Denver. 